in Ephesians chapter 3, we have Paul making a landmark statement about his calling. And while we've covered this week after week, we're currently nine sessions into learning about dispensations and seeing how God has divided His Word into allotments that we should understand by giving us a pattern. So Paul was given this knowledge of the church. The church is called a mystery. It is something that wasn't known previously. In fact, if a prophet was to stand on one end of history and to look out to see the expansion of Israel and the calling of the nation and all that would happen in its redemption and ultimately inheriting the land, you wouldn't see the church. Some have called this the dual peaks of prophecy. It's where somebody would look out and they would see one peak this way of the first coming of Christ. And just over the shoulder of that one, you might see a second peak, of which would be the second coming of Christ. But the valley in between those two peaks was unknown. And that's actually where we are. Because we are the church. The church is not a building. It's not an institution. It is a community of people from all over who have one thing in common. They've recognized that Jesus Christ is their Savior who died for their sins and rose from the grave. That's what makes somebody part of the church. With that being said, Paul gives us a glimpse in in Ephesians 3, starting in verse 8. He says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the... What is it, church? The dispensation. Ah. Takes a minute for it to warm up. The dispensation of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church, through the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, God's wisdom in you and in me, together as the body of Christ, proclaims a profound message in the unseen realms of principalities and powers, demons and celestial beings. God's work in us actually preaches a solid message. That's why this time now, every day of our lives, cannot afford to be wasted. If you're a Sunday Christian, read your Bible. A believer in Christ is who you are, not what you do. And this time in history is critical. The world is going to get worse. It's not getting better. We're not going back. There are not enough DeLoreans on earth to take us there. I have to admit, I didn't think of you when I thought of that. So, But we cannot afford to be so consumed with the natural that we've dismissed the supernatural. The supernatural is equally as real. And so when we find useless things consuming our time, effort, energy, attention, 
everything. Recognize that we are walking in a form of darkness. I understand that's a serious statement, but recognize what our times hold. We are not called to waste time. We are called to make the most of it while we have it. Our time here on earth is short. 80 years if we're blessed, maybe a little bit more. That seems to be a a longevity that some people attain. But to be using every moment while it counts. And the reason is because of what we're going to see today. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. God wants to do something and the church is absolutely indispensable in what He wants to do. Does God work with an unfaithful church? No. Can God do amazing things through a faithful church? God can do the miraculous, the unheard of, the absolutely profound through an obedient church. It starts with being an obedient person in order to make up the whole of an obedient local body. So now, I was late on this, forgive me, but this is a little half-sheet handout for the day. It just so happens I have some fine people that have said they would be willing to pass this out if you would like to have it. So that we don't have any stragglers all over the floor after we pick up the chairs, if you would just raise your hand real quick and they will get this to you. There you go, boys. Go for it. Get it done. Such good kids. You guys did a good job. Carl, where are you at on this? Oh, well, never mind. That's okay. I'm just messing with you. While they're passing this out, I'm going to go over the information you already know. A dispensation is a period of time during which man is tested in respect to obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. And what you find is this is a very easily discerned pattern. If we will just start in Genesis and work our way to Revelation, you can see it unfold right before your eyes. Number one, there's a responsibility. God, being the creator and owner of everything, decides that He wants to entrust some of that authority to us. The world is held accountable at large for some reason. And He makes that known through each one. However, because we are sinful, not just that we sin, but we are sinful, we end up failing in the responsibility that God gives us. Selfishness, pride, I don't know. Wanting to be made much of, who who knows? There's all kinds of things that lead people absolutely astray. For some reason, obedience just seems unattainable in these things. And so God has to bring in a judgment because God has to judge all sin. He is a gracious, merciful, loving God. Let's not ever downplay that at all. But also, let's not let that eclipse and cause to be lopsided the fact that He needs to bring things to justice. And so yes, His judgment is real. Yes, people are held accountable for what they knew and did not do. And He does bring judgment into those situations. God is serious about this. But on the other side, we find that God's grace is waiting despite or failure. Again, every dispensation is this way. So here's what we saw two weeks ago when we looked at the church. The world is commanded to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as witnessed to by the church. That implies that we are all witnesses on behalf of Christ dying for our sins and raising from the grave. Evangelism is a priority 
for the church. Now that's really easy because number one, we know what it is. Number two, we're either doing it or we're not doing it and the Holy Spirit will let you know. Number two here is the failure. Though we may share the gospel, the world is going to reject Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. Why? Because they love themselves rather than loving the Lord. What is the judgment? The rapture. When every believer in Christ, in the twinkling of an eye, will be suddenly snatched away from this earth. There is so much evidence for the rapture in the New Testament. We just had an elder meeting this past Thursday night. And I think we were all bowled over it. How many pages? We're reading through a book, The Theology of the Church. We're reading through this book. This chapter is at least two times as thick as all the other chapters in the book because there's so much evidence for the rapture. It's going to happen. And when it does, the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer will also be removed with them as the restraining force over the earth. God has called every disciple in Christ to be salt and light. Well, what happens when you remove the salt and light? You get moldy and dark. That's what you get. That's all I could think of would be the opposites of that, but hopefully it paints a picture for you. What is the grace? God will once again turn His attention back to Israel because now He is ready to begin fulfilling everything that He told us in the Old Testament. The ball is now ready to roll again. So, this is the seventh dispensation, the tribulation. Now, commonly, if you read some people who ascribe to dispensations and teach that, they don't include the tribulation as a seventh dispensation. They don't understand it to be a stewardship, and I understand why. I've read the reasonings on it, but I'm not convinced by it. Here's the reason why. They often call the church dispensation the dispensation of grace. Now, I don't care for that, because I believe that God has been gracious all throughout the Bible, and I think that if we just read it from Genesis to Revelation, we see how exceedingly gracious He is. But the idea that because of their crucifixion of their Savior, God has taken the Jews and He has set them aside for a time and has judged them by giving them a partial hardening. We find that in Romans chapter 11. And now there is a time of the Gentiles that comes forward. So when the church first starts out in Acts chapter 2, you find for the first probably 15 to 30 years, it's predominantly, maybe 20 years, it's predominantly Jewish. And then all of a sudden, somebody gets the wild idea to start sharing with Gentiles. And next thing you know, you have a much broader scope of evangelism that is available. And all of a sudden, it shifts. It starts coming away from Jews who are accepting their Messiah, moves into Gentiles who never had a Messiah, but all of a sudden are found with an eternal hope. And this is what leads Paul to write in Romans chapter 9, paraphrase version, Jeremy's version, what's wrong with this picture? What's going on here? All of the promises are theirs. This grand heritage is theirs. They are rich in history with Yahweh. And what is taking place here? Now Gentiles who never had anything have got it all. What in the world is God doing? And he brings two conclusions to the front of that. God's word didn't fail. That's not the problem. If we're going to blame anybody, let's not blame God's word. God's word is not the problem. What is the problem? Number two, unbelief. The Jews just chose not to believe that Jesus was their Messiah. And so in doing so, the salvation has come to the Gentiles. And if you're a Gentile, you say, praise God, because now I'm included as part of the body of Christ. But there will come a point where when this time is done, 
God will wind it down by taking us up and removing the influence of truth off of the earth. That is a judgment. You take the bonds off a crazy man, what's a crazy man do? No, he makes a cup of tea and sits down at the table and writes a love letter to his mama, doesn't he? No, he goes crazy. And that's exactly what this world will do once we're out of the way. You guys see it, don't you? You realize it's going to get crazier? Yeah. Do you see it? It blows my mind because it's unfolding just as God wants. Let's talk about the timing of the tribulation. When the church is removed, this now moves us into a new area. Turn in your Old Testament to the book of Daniel. We covered this a while back, so I'm just going to hit it briefly. Hopefully I've been able to spell it out in such a way as to where we can understand it. If not, please feel free to write me and ask questions or come up and talk to me afterwards. But I think I counted that I have 68 slides today. We can do it. Be optimistic, guys. What? 68 slides? I spent three hours on Facebook. Surely not. Moving on. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Daniel chapter 9. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. Now real quick, this is the angel Gabriel. He's talking to Daniel. For your people... Your holy city. Does everybody remember this? Who are the people? Israel. What's the holy city? Jerusalem, you guys are great Bible interpreters. Better than a lot of people out there. Here's what's going to happen. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Seventy weeks. We have here clear timing. Anytime that the Bible wants to give you timing, it's either being audacious or it's being true. You get to choose. But God is actually saying, though He doesn't need time, He is going to give us a time period so we can see how these things are going to work out. And what that does is allows us to theologically lick our finger, hold it to the wind, and say, is God telling me the truth on this? He says, you are to know and discern that from the A... Issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. What's seven plus 62? 69. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the latter part of what he just described, stick with me, we're going to put it all together for you here in just a second. After that time period, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? Because the king was on earth. If Israel would just listen to their promised Messiah, turn away from their idols, turn away from their empty rituals, turn away from putting on the mask and playing religion all day long, and recognize who Jesus is and embrace Him as their King. He would have ushered in the kingdom at that moment. It all would have been wonderful in our carefree and happy, loving world. 
And notice, and the people of the prince who is to come, this is somebody different, will destroy the city. What's the city? Jerusalem. And the sanctuary. What's the sanctuary? The temple. Yeah. There we go. And its end will come with the flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. How do we understand this? Number one, the word weeks is the Hebrew word Shavuim. And it's the idea of a unit of seven. So when we talk about that there is a week, we're encapsulating that into seven days for how we understand that. What this would actually be saying is 77s. If you were to look at verse 24, it should be properly interpreted 77s. In fact, if you have a New American Standard, you'll notice that the note there tells you it's a unit of seven that you're dealing with. And so if we have seven sevens, that would equal 49 years. If we have 62 sevens, that equals 434 years, which brings us to a grand total of 483 years. Now, after this time, the Messiah is cut off. This means that one sevens is unfulfilled. What does it say in verse 24? Look at it. Seventy weeks. Seventy sevens. Now, drop the zero off for all of you from Kentucky. What is seven times seven? Forty-nine. Put the zero back on. What do you got? That's how I learned math, and it's still better than Common Core. So everybody calm down. <clears throat> 490 years. But if you take 490 and you subtract it from 483, how many years do you have left? Seven. There's still seven years that are left. And they have not been fulfilled yet. So, how do we understand this? This all comes to be totaled in 360 days per year. That's what the Jewish calendar holds. When that's multiplied by 69 years, you actually find out that the total days is 173,880 days. This is how cool God is. In Daniel 9.25, we saw that a decree would be sent out to rebuild. And there's only one decree that you find in all of Scripture. And that is in the book of Nehemiah when Artaxerxes sends out a delegation with Nehemiah in order to rebuild the walls around this. This occurred... On March 5th, 444 B.C. Here is the reference for it in case you want to check that out. 173,880 days later, Messiah comes. And it is Palm Sunday when He's marching in. The date for that is March 30th, A.D. 33. To the day, exactly as it was calculated, the decree is sent out, 173,880 days later, Jesus is coming in and they're laying down their coats and their palm branches, welcoming their Messiah to be king. Except in chapter 9, verse 26, what does it tell us? He will be what? Cut off. When did that happen? Just a few days later, April 3rd, AD 33. You find after that, just as they told us, there would be a destruction of the city and the sanctuary. In fact, Jesus took the time to predict it. You don't have to write it down, or you don't have to turn there, but if you want to write this down, that would be good. Here's what Luke 19, 41-42 says. When He approached Jerusalem, He saw the city and He wept over it, saying, if you had known this day, because they could have known this day, 
If they just would have believed exactly what the Word of God said and calculated it out, they would have known with pinpoint precision what day He was coming into the city. Even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Why? Unbelief. That's why. For the days will come future upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation because they denied that Jesus was their Messiah there was no longer an invitation and that had been replaced with judgment why because the signs were so ridiculously clear of who he was. He even told them. He even told Pilate, Are you a king? I am a king, but my kingdom's not of this world. Pilate went out. I can't find anything wrong with this guy. And they acted just like this. Well, check him again. Because we just can't be satisfied when somebody comes out and gives us an answer. We have to have all these reinforcements that stick with it. Anyway, Back to Daniel 9.27. And he, that's the prince who is to come. Remember, the spirit of Antichrist is already here. It's in the world. It's waiting. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one, how long? Sevens. There is your missing. This gives you the time marker of when this seven is going to start back up. 483 years have already happened to the day that Jesus came in. He is then killed, murdered, just a few days later, and the prophetic time clock shuts off. But there's going to be something that triggers to where it's going to come back on and begin counting down. But in the middle of the week, in the middle of the week, He will put to stop, put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Now here's what that tells you. It tells you that during that time, a temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. They won't be offering sacrifices and grain offerings anywhere else. Why? Because God has something throughout the Old Testament called the theology of sacred spaces. And He tells them, you will worship Me here at this time as I have told you to do it. And if you do not, you are in sin, period. God is very strict about how He desires to be worshipped. That's why it's not in flesh. It is in spirit and truth. There is no carnality allowed in that. Moving on, understanding the time. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Here it is. Our one sevens is our seven years we're missing. But in the middle of the week, He will put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offering. So how do we calculate that? Half of seven. That used to boggle me forever until I got into 11th grade. Okay. Then I realized, okay, three and a half. That's what we're dealing with. That's what He's saying here. Three and a half years in, something is going to happen. The Antichrist is going to be removed from being a peaceful person, which is going to be a lie this entire time. And he is now going to become a wrathful and vengeful dictator who all power has been given to him because obviously he's the only one that is the solution for everything. I don't know if he's going to be voted for, but how some Christians treat Trump, I wouldn't be surprised if he was voted in. So shame on us for being so stupid. But we won't be there during this time. They will be looking for salvation through the wrong person. And Satan will so craft things in such a way 
is to lead an incredible, deceitful lie. He's got the whole world under his finger. So, how should we? How? Why should the tribulation be considered a dispensation? Here's a oh, go back. Here's a reason why. Number one, it has a definite beginning. The church will be raptured and a peace treaty will be signed. It's as clear as day in the scriptures. But number two, it has a definite end, the second coming of Christ. In fact, I found this was interesting. As far as I'm concerned, Ryrie has written the definitive book on dispensationalism. But I found this quote in there, and then he gave three or four paragraphs why he didn't agree with what he wrote. And I don't understand that. But here's what he wrote. The tribulation is a time of wrath. It distinctly deals with Israel again. Assuming that the rapture is before the tribulation, the true church is absent from the earth. And the gospel to be preached during that period is the gospel of the kingdom. These features seem to characterize a different dispensation. And then he goes on to argue with himself. But I like this quote. There you go. A plus, Charles. Good. The church is gone. So it can't be a continuation of the church dispensation. Israel now becomes the major player. In fact, you read through the book of Revelation. Do that sometimes. Read it out loud. That's a lot of fun. Read it so your neighbors can hear it. That's even more fun. <clears throat> you read it through. You're going along. And all of a sudden you find that after chapter 3, there's not really the mention of the church anymore. From 4 all the way to 19, you have this 4 and 5, chapters 4 and 5, this grand scene in heaven of worship that's going on. And then in chapter 6, you begin seeing seal judgment. You begin seeing people like the 144,000. You begin to see martyrs. You begin to see the dragon, Satan. You begin to see the child, which some people are confused about what that means. We'll talk about that later. You begin to see the two witnesses. You begin to see trumpets. You begin to see bowls. And Israel is on the scene and Satan is dealing with it. The Antichrist, the false prophet. God is in the mix of all this stuff going on. The church cannot be found. And so if that is the situation, there's no reason why we should think that the tribulation is a continuation of the church. It's not. So how do we look at this? Everybody ready? I'm going to ask you to turn to these because it's important we know where these are located at. Here we go. The responsibility. What is the entrusted authority during the time of the tribulation? Please turn to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Everybody get limbered up. You need to stand up and strike a, a warrior one. I'm okay with it. Don't go too fast. Don't hurt yourself. Matthew 24 and 25 are Jesus' definitive teachings on the end times. I encourage you to read that sometime out loud to your neighbor. Okay? And as he's going through a series, an overview of the events, he ends the main crux of this section with this very interesting statement. He says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And I'll go ahead and say that that means Gentiles and Israel, but we'll talk about that in just a second. And then, everybody see the word then? It's a timing word. And then the end will come. The gospel of the kingdom. Now recognize this real quick. If this messes you up, please talk to me about it later. The gospel of the kingdom is not the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came on the scene, when John the Baptist was his forerunner, they were saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They were not talking about the crucifixion at that time. That happened after Israel had rejected 
the gospel of the kingdom. What was the gospel of the kingdom? Your king is coming, and he's going to establish his kingdom. And it's not any different from a literal understanding of a kingdom, just as it referred to what happened in David's day. The Bible is kingdom-oriented. Now with the rejection by the Jews of Jesus, he now turns away from them. He dies on the cross, is buried, raises from the dead, for 40 days talks to his disciples about the kingdom. And then he ascends and is gone. In doing so, we now have this brand new thing of the church that opens up and we now see all through Acts they're proclaiming the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The death and the resurrection of Jesus. Or let me back up and give you the big picture. As you read Scripture from beginning to end, you learn more about the message that is going on because the expanse broadens. So when this comes time, and the tribulation happens and the church is gone. No church. No church. When people become believers during the tribulation, they don't become part of the church. They're just believers in Christ. They don't receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. They don't have spiritual gifts. None of that stuff. That time is over. What's scary is, is that when we're all raptured, no one on the earth will be saved. That's what scares me. Good grief. This is the reason why we share the gospel with people. Raise your hand if you know somebody that you would love for them to be here during the first minute of the tribulation. You would love for them to be here during the first minute of the tribulation? I, that's what I thought. I was like, whoa, Louise is a special kind of cruel. That's interesting. Wow. Okay. Yikes. We don't want that to happen. The gospel of the kingdom, now on the other side of the death and resurrection of Christ, is going to include what he has done for the world by redeeming them. People aren't redeemed any other way. But it's still going to have this message of the king is coming and he's bringing his kingdom. That is the gospel of the kingdom. Revelation chapter 14. Let's turn there real quick. Because there's another facet of it that is incredibly interesting. There is more than one gospel in the Bible. Revelation chapter 14 verses 6 and 7. It says, and I saw another angel living, sorry, flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel. Does everybody see that? Eternal good news. What is that eternal good news? To preach to those who live on the earth, same audience, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people, that's usually used to delineate who the Gentiles are there, so everybody's included. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give Him glory. Because the hour of His what? Judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. Worship the Creator. Your time is short. So this, coupled with the gospel of the kingdom, is going to be the predominant message that is spread all over the world. Now, as with other dispensations, there were some people who did respond faithfully. I don't want to get too much in this because it's the entire chapter of Revelation 7. But turn back to Revelation 7. There is an angel that descends that has the seal of the living God and decides that he is going to, by the command of God, he's going to take 144,000. Now just pay attention to the screen here. 144,000 sealed. And the seal was number one of ownership, number two of divine protection because later on the 144,000 are martyred for their faith. But they are believers. Now here's what's great. They're all Jewish. 
Praise God. We've been enjoying your Savior for so long and we just went all up to heaven to start our party. Now you guys get to join in. It's a good day. But notice what it says. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. There's 12,000 sealed. Verse 9. After these things I looked and behold, a great multitude. Now, after these things, does everybody see that switch there? After I saw that 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel were sealed by this angel on God's behalf, I then saw something else. Notice, it's a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Now, it's going to be a little bit before we get in the book of Revelation. I'm looking forward to doing that, so we don't have time to pull all this apart. But who is every, tra- every nation, tribe, people, tongue? Who are they? They're Gentiles. Is who they are. Here's what it seems to be telling us. The 144,000 Jews who are now saved believers, are not just saved believers, they're radical, on-fire evangelists. Okay? Nobody's handling snakes, nobody's drinking poison. But what they are doing is they are going all throughout the earth and they are sharing about the gospel of Jesus Christ and they are preaching His coming kingdom and they are telling these people to worship God because judgment is coming. Because of that, innumerable Gentiles are getting saved. And in the tribulation, if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, quickly... Your life is taken from you because the reign of the Antichrist will not allow for this type of opposition. Why? Get this, guys. This reign of the Antichrist is going to be absolute Satanism on the earth for at least blatantly three and a half years, the latter three and a half years of the tribulation. The first three and a half, it's all peace, it's all deceitful, it's all false good grief. Look how how we all get along now that all those Christians are gone. Boy, they sure were just so much trouble. Let's have a Coke and a smile and be friends. And while that's going on, banks are changing their currency and turning it all over to one entity. And political officials are all voting in one direction. We should have a world government that deals with this. And we should have a world court that judges everybody. And we should have a world currency that happens. And you know what? While we're at it, because this one world thing is just so appealing, let's all get together and have one religion so we can all worship one God. And this is how it all happens. And it says that the kings of this earth all turn their power over to the Antichrist. When he has all this power, he walks into the middle of the temple that the Jews have rebuilt. He stops all of their sacrifices. He declares himself to be God. He says, worship me or I will kill you. And a mass slaughter begins to happen. It is a horror story. It's absolutely a horror story. Read Revelation sometime. I've heard some of you. Revelation scary. Not if you're saved. It's fuel. And it should be fueling our motorboats to go out and tell people about the gospel is what it should do so notice they get saved it says here and they cry out with a loud voice saying salvation to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb and all the angels standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures they all fell on their faces before the throne of god they worship god saying amen 
blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We got something to learn about worship that goes on in heaven. Good googly. These people are on fire. I love it. Then one of the elders answered saying to me, these are our clothed in the white robes. Who are they and where have they come from? Like this guy don't know. I said to him, my Lord, you know. That was a polite way of John putting it. And he said to me, because he asked the question, he's going to go ahead and answer it himself. Don't you love those kind of people? Angels are like that too. Here we go. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over there. In other words, when they came to faith in Christ during a satanic worldwide regime, they willingly gave up their lives to hold fast to their confession. And because they did that, they get a special privilege that nobody gets where they get to serve right before God's throne day and night. It never stops. They are personal servants of the Creator. It says here, they will hunger no longer. Kind of tells you what they went through. No thir nor thirst anymore. Nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. So there's part and parcel of the responsibility. The 144,000 actually listened to the message. What is the failure that goes on here? How was unfaithfulness happened? Number one, there is failure to respond to supernatural judgment. Look over at Revelation 9. Supernatural judgment. There's a lot that goes on here with the judgments taking place, but I just want to show you the, re the results of this. At this point, a third of mankind has been killed. The judgments have poured out in such a way, think about it, one-third of the earth is gone. We have about 8 billion people on the earth right now. I don't have my abacus with me, but what's one-third gone of that? Do you might know? What is it, 5.75, something like that? I sound like I know what I'm talking about. Let's do that. So, thou too will be left. And there's numerous more that will die on the way. But look at chapter uh, 9, verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind, from the one-third that, that was killed, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent, there's the problem, of the works of their hands. So as not to worship demons, pause. Does everybody see that? It's as plain as day in our Bibles. What are they doing during this tribulation time? Number one, they're worshiping demons. And people are loving it. Don't tell me that Katy Perry's a Christian. Stop it. Well, she used to be. What happened there? Don't tell me that Lady Gaga's got our best interest in mind. She's sometimes brought in as an advisor to our presidents. That should make you a little scared. Everybody seen this Maria Ambrovich? Anybody seen her? They call her an artist. What she actually is, is she's the today's equivalent of Aleister Crowley. She is an avowed Satanist. And she is all in with all of these Hollywood elites in order to lead them into what's called spirit cooking. And she's part of helping to spearhead the satanic pedophile thing that's going on in Hollywood right now. It's all over the place. Let's not begin asking or acting like it doesn't exist. It's everywhere. Guess what? She has now been handpicked, selected in order to be the personal advisor of Zelensky in Ukraine. Google her. You'll find her holding a ram's horns and the bottom of it's been dipped in blood. Research this woman. 
She is evil. Her and Jacob Rothschild both standing together as smug as can be with a 15-foot portrait behind them called Lucifer summoning his legions. Guys, the world is controlled by Satan. Recognize this. We cannot afford to be ignorant. We have every reason to be hopeful. And here's the sad part about it, but it's actually really good. We're the only people that have, can be hopeful. There is no hope without Christ. None. You're like, well, I didn't think it was going to get this bad. It's already there. We're getting ready to graduate into something that is glorious for us, but decimating for everyone who's not going. This is why we share the Gospel. So notice this, they worship demons. Idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, wood, which neither can see or hear nor, nor walk. It's almost like John saying, duh. They did not repent of their murders and their sorceries. Anybody know what the word sorcery means? Drugs. We're so tanked up we can't even recognize God. Nor are there immorality sexual immorality, nor of their thefts. They don't respond. People in the middle of the tribulation watching all of this happen, and even though God is bringing His judgment upon them to get their attention, isn't that the reason why you paddle your kid? It's not because you hate them, it's because you're trying to get their attention and teach them wrong from right. I hope that's the reason why you're paddling your kid. It's okay to paddle your kid, do it. Failure to respond to supernatural witness. Look back at Revelation 11. Might be just the next page over for you. This is the two witnesses. The two witnesses are interesting because they're going to evangelize Jews. So Jews get saved and are sealed with the seal of the living God. They go out to the world. God puts two special people here. Trivia, trivia answer for you just to make sure you don't get it wrong. It's not Moses and Elijah. Okay? It actually tells you who it is. I'm not going to tell you who it is. Moving on here. Chapter 11, verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy, they will speak forward my word for 1260 days. Now, that's significant. Why? Because if you're dealing with a Jewish calendar as God intended it, the 360 day a year calendar, you're dealing with three and a half years. The question is, is well, what time is that? It seems to be they're doing this at the beginning because it's their deaths that start to bring the Antichrist into power to where now he's irrefutable. Now, go down to 7. They preach, and they preach. If anybody opposes them, the way that you know they're not Elijah and Moses, and the way that you know that they're actually supernatural beings, is because if anybody tries to oppose them or argue with them, fire comes out of their mouths and burns them to a crisp. That's how God feels about this situation at this point. He wants people to listen. And He's going to extreme measures to get people's attention. When they finish their testimony, that's the two witnesses, the beast, the Antichrist, that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Now here is the state of depravity at this time in the middle point of the tribulation. Those from the people and tribes and tongues and nations, who's that? The Gentiles are going to look in on this. Will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. We hate them so much we won't let them be buried. Let them lay there and be dead. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. 
it's going to become carnal Christmas because they finally had somebody who stepped up and shut down the message of these two people who no one else could oppose. And what was their message? Believe in God. The King is coming. He died for your sins and rose from the grave. Believe in Him. Repent now while you have chance. The judgment is near. It's coming. Wake up. Well, this is just too tormenting. We can't have this any longer. Oh, good. The Antichrist is here to take care of all this. Is there anything he can't do? I know. Let's put him in charge of everything. I love this part. But after the three and a half days, they're lying there dead in the street, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood up on their feet. Yeah. It's like, listen, I'm good for the rapture, but I want to see this part. I want to see it. Maybe I can pull back a cloud and be like, I don't know. I'm excited. It's good. And great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And then they went up into heaven the cloud and their enemies watched them. They were raptured in that moment. They stood up, made themselves alive. Everybody loses their marbles and then gone. Isn't that like God? I just love it. That's so good. There's also failure to respond to the wrath of God. Look at chapter 15. They don't respond to the preaching of people. They don't respond to the standards of just moral living that there should be. But also when God pours out His wrath, look at this, it's very telling. Chapter 15, verse 7. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls. Notice what it's full of. Full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Now, move forward to 16 and watch what happens with one of these bowls. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Check it out, guys. They know who's trying to get their attention. And they still ridicule, hate him, mock him, blaspheme him, and they refuse to repent. The most hard-hearted of a situation. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, the Antichrist, and his kingdom became darkened. And they gnawed their tongues because of pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. Terrible place. Now here's the one that really gets me. I talked to you about this a little bit last week. Failure to respond to the arrival of the king. You don't have to turn there yet because we're going to go somewhere else. But just look at this verse. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and his army. Let's fight Jesus. It's a bad way to go. Even when he rips through the sky and appears to them as coming back to bring judgment, their first thought is to shoot, not to bow. That's a problem. So what does the judgment look like? Well, first, there's judgment of the Antichrist and the false prophet. I'm going to go here. In the essence of time, I have to, I have to, I have to stick with this. Write it down though, okay? 2 Thessalonians 2, 7. We read the beginning of this, 2, 1 through 6, last time. Pick that up, read the whole thing, it's okay. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. What is that? That's the spirit of Antichrist, okay? I'm just going to write AC. Only he who now restrains will do so until, there's our timing word, he is taken out of the way. That is the Holy Spirit. 
then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. That's how quick it's going to be. It says it out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. I don't think that's a literal blade that's going to come out, but I think what's going to happen is, is that when he speaks truth, done. He speaks truth and heads pop off. That's the way I see it. I'm a gruesome guy. I like the first Rambo movie. Whatever. Okay. So, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. He's going to show up and the Antichrist goes down. That's going to be how great it is. That is, the one who is coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. It's spelling it out for us, guys, what the Antichrist is going to be like. With all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And so because they reject Christ, they now become deceived and deluded, and they're slaves of the Antichrist. Back to Revelation 19. Let's go there. Verses 20 and 21. The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet. Shouldn't have that in there, forgive me. The false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest, the rest are the kings. You find that from uh, verses 17 through 19. The kings and the rulers of the world who decided they were going to gather and fight against Israel in that time and then turn all of their artillery on Jesus. And the rest of them were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. There's also a judgment on the nations. Um, just, just write it down. For behold, in those days, Joel 3, one, and at that time, those days, that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, when, when Jews are coming to faith in Christ, watch this, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I think I spelled that right. Two G's, two D's, possibly. Megiddo. Megiddo in the Jew... In Hebrew, it's where we get the word Armageddon from. It's the Valley of Armageddon is what it's known as. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. God is serious about real estate. Remember that. Now watch this as part of this. They have also cast lots for my people. Roll dice and gamble. Traded a boy for a harlot. Sold a girl for wine that they may drink. What does this sound like? Anybody know? It's human trafficking. Sex trafficking humans. Because the Gentile world is involved in this, they will be judged. They will be brought to justice for this because of how they treated a boy and a girl. The Bible tells us. Where's the grace in all of this? Well, the grace is found here. If you go back to Matthew chapter 24, verses 9-13, through 13, just for a second. Because it is such a pivotal chapter. Somebody run back and tell my wife I'm sorry I'm going long. I still want to be able to eat today. <laughs> you guys are fun. Notice where we had chapter 24 of Matthew verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony of the nations and then the end will come. We had that. Look at the verse right before it. There's going to be all kinds of bad things that happen, all kinds of tribulation, all kinds of travail, all kinds of pain. 
But it says here, verse 13, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Now, some people have said, if you don't keep believing until the end of your life, you show yourself to not really be a Christian. This has Jack Diddley to do with that. This is talking about the tribulation time. This isn't talking about going to heaven when you die. It's talking about people in their human form. If they live through these seven years, they will be rescued into the kingdom because that's what comes next. Romans chapter 11. We saw this. You can write it down. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, or uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's when the rapture takes place. Now watch this. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it's written, the Deliverer. Who's the Deliverer? Jesus. Very good. Don't be shy. Will come from Zion, heaven. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. That's Israel. This is my covenant with them. And this is when the new covenant becomes a reality with them. When I take away their sins. Who is this? Israel. Also, the grace is as an undeserving world receives an all-deserving ruler and king. Now, I want to take you to this and show it to you. I'm one of those weird dispensationalists because I actually see Jesus coming back five different times in the book of Revelation. Not that He comes back to the earth five different times, but that each one of those returns is a picture of what His second coming is going to be like from different facets. There are different things that are going on. A lot of people would disagree with me. I can't help that they're wrong. It's okay. So, Revelation chapter 11. I think this is one of them. We learn a lot. And I think you'll see, yeah, this is actually happening. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, here's what they say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Who did the kingdom belong to before this? Satan. No longer. He's done. We're now giving it to Jesus and let Him do something with it. Our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign how long? Forever and ever. What's the response? The 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God, they fell on their faces and they worship God saying, we give thanks to You, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because You have taken Your great power and have begun to reign. So I believe that segment leading up to that is actually showing us the second coming happening and the inauguration of this kingdom coming to place. And then the vision starts over from a different perspective leading to that again. When we go over it, we'll talk about it. And the nations were enraged. Why? All their power had been taken away. And your wrath came and the time came for the dead to be judged and for the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints of those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. In other words, it's time to put a bow on it. Jesus is ready to rule. He's here to settle accounts. The time is over. So, how should we understand this? The seventh dispensation. What is the responsibility? The responsibility that's given out during this dispensation is repent and believe the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. Fear God and give Him glory. What's the failure? The world refuses to respond to the 144,000, the two witnesses, and the outpouring of the wrath of God. They refuse. What's the judgment? The Antichrist and the false prophet are sentenced. They're sentenced alive. They're still there. They will still be there for a thousand years after the kingdom is over. That's what we'll look at next week. But also the armies of the nations are slaughtered. And what's the grace? An undeserving world receives an all-deserving ruler and king. So here's the question. 
Can mankind govern well in the tribulation? I mean, think about it. All the Christians are out of the way. You got one guy calling all the shots. How bad can it be? On a serious note, let's think about this for just a second. Good grief, are we privileged? Because we have a Bible that doesn't just tell us how everything started, and it doesn't just tell us how everything has been, and it doesn't just tell us how everything is, but it also tells us everything that we can expect and what will be. There is no other book like it on the face of the earth. No book would even come close to touching the detail that we're seeing here. Recognize this, guys. There's something coming up called Agenda 2030. It's seven years away. Think. You will own nothing and you will be happy about it. We're going to take your car. Everybody's going to drive electric. Who knows, man? That sounds like a good time, doesn't it? I can see some good old boys running their Fords into those things. Anyway, let's pray. Lord God, I thank You for being merciful and mighty. Thank You for giving us, even though we just barely scratched the surface, clear indication of what is to come. And God, we can look at this and say, I'm not, I'm not going to be here. Why does that matter? It's the simple fact that we're not going to be here that is so precious. It is the hands of Jesus Christ by His blood carrying us into Your presence. It is His desire to go and prepare a place for us and return and receive us unto Himself so that we will be with Him always. So Lord, right now, if we need anything, we need You to speak clearly to our hearts about the person that You have for us that needs to hear that Jesus has died for their sins and risen from the grave because Your love is so great that You paid the cost to be with them forever. And that's what You want. Thank You, God, that it's through us that You pursue people. And may we be an obedient church unto that end. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.